1: Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Meegu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guests are John Dearborn and Desmond King, two of the three co-authors of the book, Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic, The Deep State and The Unitary Executive published by Oxford University Press in 2021, out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, John and Desmond.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. All
1: right. Nice to have you. Your uh, third uh, co-author is Stephen uh, Skronik, and uh, I just wanted to mention that because uh, he's not here, but it's the three of you who wrote the book together. All right, so um, let me start off, I usually like to start off by asking the both of you to let our audience know a little bit about uh, your background, and particularly in relation to the subject of this book. So let me start off with Desmond first and then John.
0: Thank you very much, Kirk. Uh, It's it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a professor of American politics at the University of Oxford. In that context, uh, I I research and teach about American politics. I've been doing this for a long time, for about uh, three decades, and I've written books about um, uh, racial inequality in the American federal government, immigration policy, um, and Uh, the concept of nationalism in America. I've also written quite a bit about public administration and theories of the state comparatively. Um, And this book arose from that interest. um, And it arose because our missing co-author, Stephen Skronik, uh, who's a professor of political science at Yale, visited Oxford for a year. And he and I... um, collaborated for that year on uh, on some teaching, but also on talking about research. And this was during the height of the Trump presidency. And Stephen is an expert on both the American state and on the American presidency. So obviously the era of the Trump administration uh, attracted his interest and my interest. And we started talking and um, began Sketching out ideas for what we thought would be a paper, but quickly boomed into a book, particularly when um, uh, John, uh, who's here as well, joined us in discussions um, and accounts when Stephen went back to Yale. Uh, John will say himself, but he was a postdoctoral candidate at Yale at that period, postdoctoral fellow, sorry, at at Yale with particular expertise um, in the American government. Uh so I've got a lot of interest in theories of the state and a lot of interest in how the uh, American executive the presidency functions. And that then became the subject of this book.
2: Mm, that's very interesting. And how about you, John? So... Um- as, as Des says, um, I was at Yale as a postdoctoral associate. Um, before that, um, I did my graduate work um, for my PhD in political science at, at Yale as well. And uh, Steve Skoranek was my dissertation chair, so I had worked with him pretty closely for a while. Um, so I am now an assistant professor of political science um, at Vanderbilt University. My main interests are in American political institutions, specifically the presidency and Congress and in American political development. Um, I have for several years had a broad interest in the relationship between um, ideas and changes in presidential power over time. Um, so, in my own dissertation and now book, um, I was looking at how uh, changing notions about presidents potentially representing the national interest. Um, influenced Congress uh, in creating the institutional presidency and empowering the presidency in different ways in the early 20th century. Towards the end of that project, um, I became interested in sort of a key hinge point in our history around the 1970s, when this notion that, you know, presidents could be counted on to act in the national interest started to fall into some doubt after the Watergate scandal after Vietnam. And it's right around that period that you start to see sort of the new big idea behind presidential power become the unitary executive theory. So it was a natural jumping off point for me onto this project. And, you know, to my great good fortune, um, as Des said, Steve came back from Oxford. He was over there during my last semester of my PhD work um and came back and they graciously brought me on board what was as des said originally supposed to be a paper but um you know the issues were really important and the kinds of cases in the trump era that we wanted to delve into to explore the relationship between these ideas of the unitary executive and the deep state um really took off and it became a book
1: oh great great you know i um I, I Just to explore a little bit more of, of your personal intellectual histories, the, the both of you uh, uh, coming to this, because, I mean, you know, Tr- Trump engaged the attention of the entire world. I, I don't think there was a single human being on the planet, either positive or negative. Um, but everybody came from sort of different places. And, and, and it's, it's very interesting the things they they sort of brought to the table, if, if you want to uh, put it that way. So uh, so obviously, you know, uh, everybody here, you know, has been interested in one way or other in, in the Trump uh, presidency. But, uh, but before Trump, you, you, both of you were interested in this topic of, of this the state, and and I suppose the U.S. state. I, I don't know if it was uh, other states before, but um. So, what first got you interested in, in the topic, and so you know, so and which then eventually led to, led to this book. But, but what got you in, interested in um and, and turned you on in a sense to pursuing a path in, in you know studying. Politics was it something like Watergate or or the Bill Clinton years or or anything like that? Uh, Desmond first, and then John. Oh,
0: that's that's a great question. Um, I'm quite elderly, so I have to think back a long way. Um, But I I was an undergraduate in in Trinity College Dublin in the 1970s, uh, Mm. and then I went to Chicago for uh, graduate studies. and then and then spent I've spent all my academic career in the UK um, mostly at here at Oxford um, and I was certainly very interested in um, what what's often referred to as state theory or theories of the state. This was a very big subject when I was a undergraduate and a graduate student in particular. Mm. Um, people I think the scholars were trying to understand how the state, operated in uh, so-called Western democracies.
1: Are so you looking at the 1980s around? Yes,
0: yes, early 1980s. And there was a lot of literature on that. One one very important book by our, our co-author Stephen Scronic. Um, and because I think there was a realization that the state was a much bigger actor in in this period, 30 years after the Second World War than it had been in, in the first part of the 20th century or in the 19th century. So Understanding how that operated in in society and how it it operated internally was a major agenda item uh,
1: for can, Scotland. Can I just in, interrupt you to ask you a question? I, I remember around that time. I'm I, I'm I'm not uh, I, I'm not that much younger than you. I I was a student in the eighties myself, and I remember at that time um, after the sort of neoliberal kind of uh, you know Reagan. Yeah. Um, Yep. The there was this bring back, you know, bringing the state back in, yeah, like the World Bank. It, was it that kind of stuff that um, uh, that's got exactly you- right. And that that
0: particular book, bringing the state back in, came out in 1985. Right, That's a very major, significant um, agenda-setting book. So that's exactly the period you're you're getting it right. But but there was and there was quite a bit going on in the few years before that. Uh, but then the agenda said this agenda-setting book really continues to resonate and that but that was probably that was unquestionably formative to my my um intellectual development and my interest in, in in comparative state theory and i published the first book about it two years later in 1987 and i've i've been doing doing the same doing similar things since i also got very interested in in um in how the um so I mean, we need to come to this at some point, Kirk. So I'll, I'll mention it now. But the term state, as you will know, is is problematic in, in respect to the United States, the Africa, because um, uh, Americans talk about government at the national level and states are something that there are 50 of. Um, so this term state theory is in some ways uh, quite uh, difficult. Um, Actually,
1: as, as an aside, now that you mentioned that, which is very unique. I mean, for us who are outside of the United States, I don't think Americans realize how how, how unique it is. I think it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez, or you know, one of the the, the very you know famous famous Latin American authors said the united states of america is is the only country in the world without a name it's a description it's united states <laughs> of america it's not actually a yeah. name <laughs>
0: yeah and that's going to bring us on to the book actually um uh, because the, because those issues have have continued but i think that's right yeah um or just united some some people say but um yeah applying there um and I spent a lot of time looking at the federal government cause, and, and how that operated. And I found, particularly in respect to um, racial injustice in America, and what I discovered in later work in the 1990s, particularly, was how powerful the state was in shaping people's lives, because there's so much talk about this being a weak state and not being consequential compared mm. to the powerful, you know, uh, French or German state and so forth. Uh, mm. But it depends where you were sitting and where you were looking at this from. Because for a lot of people, they saw a state which was not helping them, but was helping others.
1: Right, right. Very interesting. And John, yourself, how, how did you um, get uh, interested f- at first in this topic of political science and uh, and the state and whatnot? Um,
2: also a, a great question. So for me, um, I think the... The early interest I had in in studying political science, even as an undergraduate, um, the 2008 presidential election in the United States happened when I was in high school. And I think that sort of just drew me into following politics generally and having an interest in that. Um, And then for whatever reason, I just loved my political science courses um, as an undergraduate at the University of Connecticut. Um, I think the key moment for me that sort of, Steered me into American political development and political institutions actually was in my senior year of college. um, I read some excerpts for a class of Steve Skronik's book, The Politics Presidents Make. and just really was captured by sort of how history could illuminate both recurrent dynamics of presidential leadership, but also point out changes to the office over time. Um, and so, uh, you know, to my good fortune, um, I managed to be able to study with him at Yale. Um, I think at Yale, my, my particular interest um, in ideas in the presidency that helped lead to this book, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure why, but early in graduate school in various ways, I kept coming back to this sort of theme of ideas and presidential power or how presidents talked about certain concepts. So sometimes that was thinking about how presidents have, you know, changed the way they talk about a concept like equality of opportunity. Um, over the different decades. Um, In my dissertation, it ended up being this concept of presidential representation and actually how other actors in the political system, like Congress, like progressive reformers and others, talked about that idea. Um, And so, as I said, this book sort of just naturally uh, fit into that agenda for me of thinking about, you know, taking seriously um, what political actors do with certain concepts what interests they have in certain concepts and how these ideas um, in the hands of political actors can actually affect transformations in our governing institutions over time
1: All right that's that very interesting good good. Um, so let's take take a look at the title of your book. It's it's a very uh, evocative title that, that has uh, you know words that um, uh, need to that need to be unpacked, and, and I, I'd like us to do that, it's, right? So, phantoms of a beleaguered republic, the deep state, and the unitary executive. So we have the beleaguered republic idea. We have this idea that the uh, that there are phantoms and then the Deep State and the Unitary Executive. So there's a lot just in that title right there. So why don't we start unpacking it sort of one by one? So what do you mean by the beleaguered republic? Um, Desmond, John, whoever wants to jump in. Well,
0: I'll start with that, and and I'll let John take phantoms then, if I may. (laughs) I, I mean, beleaguered republic means that we see institutional crises in the presidency in the United States, and the position of the presidency in the Constitution. I mean, it means various things, but I think building particularly on Stephen Skaronic's work, that and some of the work he's done with other colleagues, um, the institutions of the presidency, the institutions of the federal government in America, the national government, have expanded dramatically uh, in terms of... Policy responsibilities, expenditures, uh, levels of income, and so forth, and this has strained relationships. The particularly the classic notion of the separation of powers between the the presidency, uh, uh, the the Congress, and the courts, and um, the idea in significant part is to convey that there is uh this is a cumulative problem and it's one that's not particularly about individual personalities though obviously it makes an enormous difference who is in the white house and who holds the the presidency but it's not meant to be just that um it's not meant to be it's really not just meant to be about the trump presidency is it's, it's we we think there's a there's a wider uh, institutional context, which is really quite significant.
1: All right. Okay. And, and, um, John Desmond was passing on the phantoms idea to you.
2: Sure. Um, so I'm actually in, in, in addressing the phantoms part, going to mention the deep state in the unitary executive. Um, so for us, uh, the, the concepts of the deep state and the unitary executive are really the phantoms that we're talking about. Um, and here's what we mean by that. So we think that both of these ideas, the deep state and the unitary executive, are sort of exaggerated, um, almost fantastical conjectures um, that are related to real claims, but in the Trump era get magnified um, and sort of take on a life of their own. So. Um, To start maybe with the deep state uh, concept. Um, So the deep state, of course, is a term that has been used to refer to arrangements in other governments where the military would monitor political leadership and condition its control. Um, Turkey would be one example um, in which this term was used. Uh, But for Donald Trump, when he invoked the term the deep state uh, he is alleging that administrators, that the permanent bureaucracy in the United States was putting their own interests, their own ideology ahead of his preferences as the elected president of all the people. So he was charging that these bureaucrats were uh preventing him from achieving all of his political priorities, um, and that they were resisting both his constitutional authority and the will of the people that elected him. So uh, his image is an exaggeration of something that is real, which is that we do have a permanent government, we have a civil service, but in Trump's hands, this idea becomes um, a sort of political weapon, if you will, to criticize the administrative state. So that's one phantom. The second one is the unitary executive. So the unitary executive is a constitutional claim. Um, It comes out of the opening sentence of article two of the constitution, which states that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. That is the vesting clause. Um, So in Article 1, when Congress gets power in the Constitution, there is a seeming limitation on those powers. Uh, It's limited to powers, quote, herein granted. But there's no such qualification on uh, the wording in Article 2. And this is a source of a lot of controversy over the rest of our history. So here, there is something real about the vesting clause. The president is vested with executive power. But again, in the hands of Trump and in the hands of uh, some promoters of this unitary executive theory, uh, this really, again, takes off with a little bit of a life of its own and a very, very sharp political edge. Um, So for Unitarians, uh, they assert that Article 2 doesn't just vest some of the executive in power in the president, in former Justice Antonin Scalia's words, or even most of the executive power in the president, their assertion is that it vests all of the executive power in the president. Um, For example, Attorney General William Barr said to Donald Trump that he, the president alone is the executive branch. Um, So, the implication of that then is that administrators really for believers in this theory have no independent standing or authority of their own. And what Trump did, the reason we we think about this as phantoms plural is he intertwines these two claims um, in, in a particularly significant way. So for Trump, he makes the deep state allegation uh, a way to advance the case for a unitary executive, because he alleges mm-hmm. all these bureaucrats are out to sabotage my agenda to prevent me from controlling the executive branch. The solution to that problem is then to clamp down, to be a unitary executive and to assert that you hierarchically control the executive branch. And it's that contest between those two different sort of notions of authority that administrators have some standing of their own, that they stand for stability and governance, um, you know, vetting presidential orders, that sort of thing, versus Trump's um, you know, claim that He's acting for the will of the people that elected him. It's that contest that we see throughout his presidency, um, and it really had a destabilizing effect on American government.
1: Yeah, that that's very interesting. So, so if I were to um, uh, sort of paraphrase what you said, uh, tell me if you if if I'm correct. Basically, the deep state and the unitary executive are kind of uh, they are are. Sort of almost contradictory elements within the American Constitution that that were sort of I don't know caricatured in a sense and and made more antagonistic to each other under the Trump presidency and which revealed I suppose a real contradiction within the uh, American Constitution itself is is, is that a, a good understanding of what you're saying?
2: Yes, that's a that's a good understanding and I, I think what your um, phrasing also highlights is that uh, the whole place of the administrative state of administrative depth and stability in our constitution has always been a bit unsettled um, and so that that Lack of a durable settlement going all the way back to the founding allows something like the contests that we saw in the Trump era to actually take place.
1: Right. Now, uh, if if I understand your, your argument correctly in the book, um, one of the things that you, you take off on um, is that you think it's a great error for people to particularize these tensions uh, to Trump as an individual, as some sort of aberration in American history, that this is actually a, a, a recurring, ongoing problem uh, and and that it just became magnified under Trump, but that it, it, it remains today and it was there long before. Uh, is that correct? And if so, can you just elaborate upon that a little more? Uh, Desmond?
0: Yes, uh, that is correct.
1: Yes. Um... I'm
0: just thinking about, I I think John got this across perfectly, uh, because one of the things that's come out of um, our analysis, and I think um, from the Trump era, is he, his administration employed the term deep state dismissively and as an obstruction. But we investigate this in the book, and as John indicated, um, argue that the For want of a better term, the administrative state, which is being labeled, which is a a package of history, legacies, and expertise, is a vital part of the American political system and is necessary for checks and balances to work. Uh, It's a way for Congress to get expertise and it's a way for accountability to be held. Um, We think that um, the Trump presidency was. Uh, uh, a culmination uh, of developments within the the state. I mean, the idea, for instance, of the the unitary executive. It's it's a doctrine. It's a an approach to the powers of the presidency, which has been a pro, which has been um, promoted since the nineteen seventies, and could be found in in uh, some parts of the the Nixon presidency going back to then. And it's a doctrine which has. Um, supporters in law schools uh, and has had supporters on the Supreme Court and now has quite a lot of supporters on the Supreme Court. So, But the implications of this, the unitary executive, the as, as John said, um, what's in the constitution about vested powers in the presidency are really significant. Um, and I don't think anybody had really thought about this to this extent. The but we, you can document empirically how presidents over the last 50 years have increasingly used aspects of, unit, of this unitary executive power. An obvious indicator is using executive orders, trying to get around um, uh, gridlock in Congress by um, increasingly issuing uh, orders, which which can then be considered. Can be um, legally challenged, but 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 nonetheless, quite often uh, succeed in setting out a policy goal. So, I, so
2: I hope that helps explaining the uh, yeah.
0: where we're going. Yeah.
2: Anything you want to add, John? Uh, sure. So I think um, another another part of the argument, and and maybe a way um, to to help answer this question of what what is unique about Trump, but uh, more specifically for us, as, as Des said, um, why do we view the Trump presidency as a culmination of building tensions, um, particularly in the executive branch, as opposed to just some anomaly? So, um, you know, at least since the 1970s, um, since the Nixon era, as Des points out, um, you see these rising tensions where presidents start to become more distrustful of administrators. Um, they want to, you know, get their agenda done through administrative action. So there's this interesting, um, phenomenon where, on the one hand, the fact that we have, you know, so much of an executive branch bureaucracy by this point, it gives presidents an opportunity to do more things on their own, to achieve policy goals uh, through directing administrators, including through executive orders, as Des said. Um, but at the same time, they're starting to become more distrustful. And, and you know, each president is going to come in and want to do certain things. But again, administrators throughout the executive branch among other things, have an interest in promoting government continuity and promoting stability in implementing the statutory mandates of their agencies from Congress. Uh, and so, you know, there's a bit of a different interest there for them than the interests of the president in some cases. So what Trump does is he takes attention that already exists and is definitely building But magnifies it, and essentially he turns his his claims on behalf of a unitary executive, his assertion that he should have the right to hierarchically direct the executive branch in every way. It turns his quote deep state conspiracy into something of a self fulfilling prophecy, because the more that Trump clamps down, the more aggressive he is in asserting personal control over the executive branch. It basically starts to compel administrators to resist them. So they start to double down on their resources, their statutory authority, their knowledge and expertise, their media connections, their interest group support. And of course, this then gives Trump, he thinks, evidence that the deep state idea is real. I think one case that would be illustrative of this Um, is the first impeachment um, over the Ukraine affair. So, in that case, over and over, you see that every time the president tries to clamp down, uh, he he gets resisted in some way. So, for example, you know, Trump has the famous phone call with the president of Ukraine, uh, where you know he he seems to ask for the Ukrainian leader's help in discrediting Joe Biden. Uh, well, that prompts you know a reaction from national security officials and a whistleblower. Then the administration, learning of this whistleblower report, tries to clamp down and prevent that report from going anywhere. But by this point, it's gone to an inspector general of the intelligence community who is duty-bound to report it to Congress. The administration then comes up with a justification saying that that complaint can't be turned over to Congress uh, because the law in question doesn't apply to the president, Uh, But by this point, Congress knows there's a complaint that exists. They don't know what it is. So that ratchets up the pressure to get what that complaint is. And then in the impeachment itself, once it's come out that Trump did this and the House of Representatives is investigating, you see that the administration tries to prevent a bunch of people from testifying to Congress. And at the top levels, at the political appointee level in particular, or the White House staff, they succeed in doing so. But a lot of the um, lower level officials actually seem to be drawn out by this. They go one by one to the House of Representatives to spill the beans. You see Alexander Vindman uh, go and testify about Trump's phone call. You see Fiona Hill from the National Security Council testifying. Uh, A bunch of folks from the State Department, one of the most maligned departments under the Trump presidency. And of course, for Trump and for the Republicans, this just to them reads like evidence. Well, these bureaucrats think that they have a say in developing the foreign policy of the United States. We think it's the president's job to do that. Whereas, of course, for the administrators like Fiona Hill, like Alexander Vindman, they see themselves as promoting good government. That they, you know, consult among their different agencies and help develop the policy of the United States according to both the president and Congress's wishes. So that episode is just one really good example of how these two different understandings of uh, authority in the executive branch come to blows and how they sort of draw each other out.
1: Okay, that's, that's uh, very um, illustrative and, uh, and interesting there. I, I, I want to explore uh, the idea of the, the deep state a little more um, that's uh, in a sense, not necessarily so focused on your book, but, but more, uh, in general. And, uh, I'd like you to comment on, on this sort of observation I've had since you guys have been you know studying it in depth. I'd like to hear what you have to say. And, you know, the, I, I find it very fascinating the way the idea of the deep state has, um, it, it seems to me it's sort of shifted from a left-wing concept to a right-wing concept, which is fascinating to me because um, I, I, you know, I, I, I came from, uh, you know, the, the sort of left-left tradition, and, and and the deep state idea was a, is a normal. Uh, I, you know, an idea of of long standing. You know, the military industrial complex, the FBI, the assassinations of King, Malcolm X, the Kennedys, the Panthers, the destabilization of the Third World the Yandy man, all, all this kind of stuff. You know, Oliver Stone. This year, I think he he's he's going to. Uh, it might be today or this week, or he did it already, or something. Um, JFK revisited, and I saw Rolling Stone like really attacking him for attacking the FBI, you know. And and I was so surprised when I heard Donald Trump start talking about this. I just found it incredibly, incredibly fascinating. And 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 the other thing I, I find fascinating is that that liberals seem to be the biggest defenders of the CIA and FBI these days. I, I just I find that something remarkable, and I, and I try to wrap my head around this. And I, I suppose it's just because they hate Trump so much that, that my enemy's enemy is my friend or, or something. But I'd really like to hear what you guys have to say about that. Uh, let me start off with Desmond, the, the older of the two. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I know exactly what you're uh, the the the
0: periods you're referring to, Kirk, and 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 I, I agree with you. So I, so I, the, the way I would try to make sense of it is as follows: um, the deep state, I, I think colloquially was definitely a term used to describe conspiracy type explanations for political outcomes and political actions, uh, not just in the US, but but comparatively. And as John said at the beginning, it's a term that developed first formally. Is, well, the first uses that you'll find of it are in respect to Turkey and and um, Egypt. Um, and it refers to these forces within the, the deep state. Um, it so it, it provided a handy way and and Trump being um, a very savvy social media user in a very savvy coiner of catchy terms I think recognized this was an agreeable term I think it had the added bonus being used in the US where as, as I was saying earlier the term state is really not used and so um uh, it's not it's certainly not use, it's not really used normatively uh, and it's not really used um descriptively so um to be able to use it uh, as as sort of the bad person uh worked mm-hmm. for them um but we do we we have tried to explicate what death means and why why would it be uh worth um Considering and we probably have to go to a negative here, Kirk. But one of one of President Trump's key uh, advisors early on in the administration talked about deconstructing the administrative state. You may remember that a very famous phrase. Yeah, and um, that meant getting rid of government um, and getting rid of scales of government. Lots of regulatory activity, lots of tax-raising powers, uh, and so forth, uh, but keeping but keeping some aspects of it. And then and that, that becomes an issue because you wonder, well, why, why is there an administrative state? And I think we, we, we explain in the book quite well that there are, there are very good reasons why you want depth thought of as bureaucracy and thought of as bureaucratic skills and expertise and direction um and i think if if we're talking about bureaucracy that's less emotive than than deep state um but it's what it's what deep state refers to in the context of a a country like the u.s it's it's the uh, bureaucratic capacities there um and i think there's a realization that you know you went through that that long list of of issues, and there, is, but there, there is a genuine dilemma here. You, you states do good as well as doing bad, and you need capacity to uh, achieve things. Um, you know these these exciting, transformative. Bills that President Biden is is he's got one through, and he's with luck will get another one through. Will then rest upon uh, administrative capacity, state capacity, um, and bureaucratic expertise to be realised. Um, so, so I don't think there's an easy answer to your question, Kirk. I think I think mm-hmm. it's, it's I think you're spot on, and I'm I, I'm with you in understanding how we would have thought about this. Um, uh, several decades ago. And it also has something to do with the curiosity that social science, to go back to where we began, Kirk, you know, had this interest in um, uh, uh, bringing the state back in. Yeah, to the very study of American society, because in some ways the state hadn't gone out of political sociology, history, or political science in um, uh, European countries, for instance, or in Latin American countries. It was in the U.S. that it really had to be brought in, yeah, because there was a very strong ideology of of no state, or of uh, a weak state, or of or of a, uh, a negative state, Um and. I, I think we probably want to inf- impute from the book, or allow readers to to infer from us that um, impute to the book and allow readers to infer that that the unitary executive is a doctrine which is quite problematic in the in the um, in the U.S. context, and in some ways it's the it's the one which has a lot um, uh, which should get a lot of our attention uh, John I don't know if that's if you'd find that too if I'm generalizing too much for us or if, if some of that makes sense
2: oh no that 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 was great um I think the only the only thing I would add is um, you know I I too would agree that there's there's a real irony of of the terms adoption by Trump and the right um, And I, you know, there, I think at least one explanation for that is, um, well, let me start by saying, uh, as Des has, we do think that the American state is certainly deep. We don't mean that in the provocative, you know, Trump usage of they're out to get the president, but depth is an attribute of the state to be sure. Um, And among those attributes, you know, there's the vertical top down fact that there's just a lot of layers of different administrators. But also, um, in our usage, depth refers to the fact that uh, there's layers of insulation in the executive branch um, and, and outside of it that helps circumscribe administrative authority. It's meant to protect against just arbitrary political impositions. Um, you know, Administrators have their own roles, their own duties. Uh, there are rules in the executive branch, procedures they're supposed to follow. There's important norms like investigatory independence, Um, or policy protections like scientific integrity policies. All of those types of things deepen the state because they depersonalize power uh, and they elevate the idea of official responsibilities over just, again, these sort of political arbitrary choices. So if you are a president that is just dead set on making your own choices for whatever reason, then depth can become an obstacle. And so for Trump, the reason why the deep state, I think, becomes somewhat of an attractive term is, you know, in the context of the 2016 election, um, he and his campaign started to be investigated, of course, um, for for any potential contacts or coordination with Russia. So the FBI was involved in that, the CIA was involved in that. So he personally... You know, had an inherent skepticism of intelligence agencies coming into office that I think was the early on origin of his general skepticism to bureaucracy um, in some way. Uh, and you know, yes, there's a long history of, of the FBI having skepticism on the other side, um, but but the particular way that that lined up was, you know, for Trump, the idea of having intelligence agencies or folks in the FBI that could make their own independent judgments um, that, you know, didn't necessarily fall in line with his political preferences, uh, that, that was an affront to him. In the same way that, for example, scientists at the EPA coming to their own independent judgment about the realities of climate change, that's also an affront to the policy goals that he has. So even though, you know, it's ironic that he comes to that view of the intelligence agencies coming from the right, it does make sense in that, Again, any independent authority for administrators, their ability to come to sort of these independent pronouncements about what is arguably true in some sense, uh, he finds problematic.
1: Right, right. Now, there's another th- uh, uh, sort of context I'd like you to put your uh, arguments and, and research into. Uh, you know, that's that's interesting to me personally in my own research, and uh, so more, you know, outside the, you know, United States context. So I'd like you to, you know, bring your insights to bear on this. And, and, and it is, you know, related to issues of, of constitutionalism and uh, deep state and administrative state. And that's, let's say in Trinidad and Tobago here where I am, um, we had, uh, so we, we became independent in 1962 and there was a, a government in power for 30 years straight. Now, it, it, it wasn't, um, uh, you know, like rigged election. There were free and fair elections. I mean, of course, there's all sorts of contestations about that, but more or less free free and fair. But you had this one party in power for so long that dominated. And when that finally changed in the 1980s, for the first time in 30 years a Another party was in power. Um, so you had a whole generation, a whole state was built by this um, th- this this party uh, that that took the country into independence and then led it for for a further twenty five years. Um, the new party, um, said that well, listen. All the civil servants are PNM, right? The People's National Movement. That's the old party. All the civil servants are PNM. We can't do anything um, because they're all stopping our policies. And and uh, and you know, I I think you know there, there was great validity in that because um, because it, it is very true that the civil service became sort of uh, you know many of them were actually you know card carrying party members and and so forth and that 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 was an interesting thing that that in many ways we still have to grapple with as a young state you know and um and and on the other and in fact the the title of my my own book on the political history of trinidad and tobago is called politics in a half-made society and i take the phrase from vs naipaul but um but that idea of a half-made society is both sociological but it's also administrative and and it points to the uh, a lack of depth which is you know what you're talking about because the idea of of depth is important in a state because um you know i i you know in a lot of the development studies literature for example you know they they talk about you know the wild instabilities of you know many developing countries where you don't have a deep state. And so from so from election to election, things can change wildly. All the laws can change. You know, so, so investing is hard. Um, um, doing business, uh, getting foreign direct investment when policy is so unpredictable because it depends on who wins the next elections. Everything can change. And um, and so so you have that that's on the problematic side. And and on the other side, I, I would look at, you know, that's true. But you know, on the other hand, the the politics are so much more exciting in, in these countries because of that. Whereas the sort of boring consensus politics of Europe and and America, where where both parts are more or less the same, you know, and and, and Trump sort of brought that sort of exciting uh, polarization back, you know, to politics in, in the first world, I I thought, you know, but all all these questions, uh, you know, come to mind when I'm looking at your book and and your reflections on, on, uh, on the United States, I would like to hear your comments on on these things in terms of its implications, um, outside of the United States as well. And and perhaps what those things may mean for, for your collaboration within.
0: Let me have a go, because this is very interesting. But if I I think about uh, Britain, um, there's a permanent civil service recruited. The principle of neutrality is absolutely central and impartiality. Uh, Every government complains bitterly about the civil service being um, uh, opposed to their policies correct uh even though they have a a tradition of of impartiality and so forth and there have been numerous reforms activities have been subcontracted out to the private sector to try and get it incentivized they they um recruit senior positions now by advertising more widely and sometimes i bringing in um non-civil service to take on leading roles and so forth so Mm -hmm. so it's it's a work in progress in the u.s of course Um, The great reform beginning in 1882 introduced a merit at uh, appointment scale for part of the civil service. But unlike other countries, about 3,000 positions at the senior levels change with every new presidency. So Mm -hmm. a presidency has the opportunity to appoint people who will uh, pursue his agenda ideologically. They may not be... um, uh, particularly competent in bureaucratic ways, but they're supposed to set an, an agenda, a policy mm-hmm. agenda, and there you get nothing. But and here we have a debate about the about the deep state on that on that basis. So mm-hmm. um, it seems to what you described for Trinidad and Tobago is 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 not uncommon, and it's it's um, yeah. it's a continuing recurring position. We're under we're all we're all carrying the um, the barbarian image. Of the um, the rational bureaucratic state, where um, mm-hmm. positions are separated from personality, and the civil servant is supposed to be able to do the job assigned to him or her, um, uh, independent of their beliefs uh, or their their um, preferences, um, and it's I, it seems to me a work a work in progress for all of our societies. Um, to get to a point where where this can be done, because there there is nothing but continuing stories about how to deal with problems of failure to deliver and failure uh, to be accountable. Uh, John referred already to the Inspector General system in the US, which is a uh, a presidential power to appoint somebody to investigate a department or to have one the office. and And it's in one sense it's an, it's a wonderful system because um it's it's a formal system of accountability and review in another sense we find in the book that it's it's very vulnerable because it really does depend in some ways on the whim of the the president and and what happens to these reports is also unclear they can be the basis for congressional hearings and investigations uh or they can just just uh sort of uh vanish um by by the wayside um and One way to think about this perhaps is about capacity and and bureaucratic resilience and bureaucratic capacity. And that's why the question of depth, let's not use the term deep state, but the question of depth Mm -hmm. and expertise uh, is is very important. And American um, uh, civil bureaucracies are distinguished by strong senses of loyalty within particular departments and particular uh, skills. Uh, that that accumulate over time. Lots of scholars have written about this, uh, very very usefully, uh, indeed. So it's a, it's a fascinating question, Kirk. Absolutely yeah. intriguing, yeah. and it's 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 really a vital question. But you know, you you if you don't have a, uh, I mean, the the tax collecting agencies are really crucial. For instance, I mean, who are they working for? Are they uncorruptible or are they corruptible? Yeah. Um, and it varies this in, 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 in uh, every political system. Um, the The constitutional framework in the u s. sets things very clearly in one sense, yet everything is contestable in courts um, uh, over time and the unitary executive we're talking about for some people, this is a jurisprudential doctrine that is very clear. For others, it's a very it's a very vague notion in the Constitution that needs to be um, uh, demonstrated to be taken seriously.
1: Did, no. There's something you mentioned there, Desmond, that um, I, I want to sort of have you elaborate on. And, um, I, I, and it, 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 I'll, I'll ask it in the form of a question, which is, uh, do, you know, outside, okay, the, Britain has no written constitution. Trinidad and Tobago has a a written constitution, but uh, you know, largely modelled on a British constitution. But but it, it's something in in progress. Like we, we you know we we remember the founders, we know who they are, right? I mean, it's just you know a few decades ago. It's not even a you know, um, and uh, so so there's something more you know malleable uh, it seems to, you know in that tradition, whereas in the United States, it's, it's as if the constitution is almost like you know. Uh, the bible or the quran or something you 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 it's you know this sort of literalistic kind of uh reverence for it uh, how, how does that factor into in, into this um uh well um
0: the, the i would say that it's as controversial in in each in each of the systems so so there is uh, well, one of the things that we do show in the book is that a lot of aspects of the American Constitution rested on norms, mm-hmm. and not formal rules, but norms. Yeah. And these norms were just ignored, disregarded, and pushed aside by the Trump administration. And this, and this is one sense. This is one aspect in which we do need to bring in the personality of Trump as the as the president. Um, norms were broken. Uh, left, right and sense. And and the response to that could well be that norms uh, don't really, uh, clearly don't have the force that people wish them to have and they're anthropological rather than constitutional and they can be dispensed with. In Britain at the moment, um, during the last two or three years, there have been um, quite dramatic uh, involvements of judicial decision-making in political processes um so uh, on one occasion forcing the uh, parliament to have a vote about the final treaty that was agreed to for leaving brexit in another case um, the prime minister proroguing parliament and then being told by the courts that this was not constitutional so his solution to that will be to change the law because he can do it in parliament with a large majority. Um so again I it, this isn't a very um pleasing or definitive uh response yeah. it's a bit like the the last question. Uh I, I do see the differences there. Um and there is as 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 you know uh, uh and and John may want to elaborate uh, intense debates in the US about the about this so called whatever we call it originalism or um mm-hmm uh uh understanding the um uh the, you know the constitution is being pure in some sense uh and that everything that we need to know is there in the original documents and the amendments and others saying this is ridiculous you know society changes uh, judges have to be active um and are they making the law and so forth so so again I, i'm 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 giving um a, a decision a, a response, sorry, that shows the continuum and the the I mean, it is the case that we are in tumultuous times yeah, uh, in our societies, mm-hmm. and there are fundamental challenges to uh, democratic institutions, uh, to norms, um, and for a populist, they would say, I'm talking rubbish, and at last, the, the real will of the people has been um, expressed and uh, consequential, and uh, this is what one needs to get used to. Um, I think that's a slightly unsubtle view. It's clear that there are major questions about about um, fundamental political values and political institutions and how they operate, not least our judiciaries and our um, uh, presses or our national um, um, media institutions.
1: Yeah, I'd like to bring John in, and, and uh, also with the to add that my understanding from looking at your book is is that um, uh, your your position, your your collective position, seems to be you know that uh, um, you know if 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 we were to take it in this kind of judicial debate of, of originalism versus you know the Constitution as a living document, that you you certainly see the Constitution as a living document, and um, and that you are urging uh, Americans to, um, you know, to, to, to come up with ways to deal with this tension. So uh, is, is that right, uh, John? And can you elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, sure. So, so this is a great uh, question that fascinates me too. You know, what, what if anything, the significance of the fact is uh, that our constitution is is written um, for a dynamic that obviously takes place across countries. So, I think the the particular significance of that is maybe two things. One is, um, as you said, Kirk. Um, you know, uh, in our political culture, for for whatever reason, there is a very very real veneration of the Constitution that that can sometimes go in in interesting political directions. And then the second thing is, of course, the rise in the last say fifty years or so of originalism. And I think it's fair to say that originalism is is probably the most, especially in the courts right now, um, you know, the most common mode of judicial interpretation. So. We take that seriously. we We take um, the originalist seriously. Um, but we look at this the sort of significance of the fact that the Constitution is written. Um, in terms of, well, what, what is the problem of interpreting it formalistically, um, to, to use that term specifically, so uh, to sort of say, well, there's a separation of powers, so that means everything needs to be separate, or something like that. If you look over our history, almost immediately, that kind of overly formalistic uh, interpretation of the Constitution did not work, So almost immediately after our government is set up, you get the development of political parties. What do political parties do? They bridge the separation of powers. They link together the president with members of his party in the Congress. So they're bridging what had been ostensibly separated. And that's entirely necessary to run the American state in the 19th century. Um, In the early 20th century, we see this again. Reformers think, you know, we've got to get more attention on national problems and nationally oriented solutions to problems. So they reinvent the system with the rise of the administrative state. On the one hand, you have the idea... If
1: I can just um, uh, interject here, I I, uh, had interviewed the author of uh, the book Madison's Sorrow, and she made the uh, the very uh, pertinent observation that James Madison, who wrote the Constitution, when he became president, he couldn't govern under the Constitution he wrote. (laughs) We had to make these these same um, uh,
2: adjustments you're talking about there. No, that's a that's a great point. There's another great book out recently um called Fears of a Setting Sun that that deals with some of the concerns about founders like John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, uh Washington, et cetera, with, you know, was was the government, was American society going to really work? So you get parties in the 19th century. In the 20th century, you get Presidential agenda setting formalized in things like the Budget and Accounting Act or the Employment Act of 1946, again, literally in some ways joining together Congress and President. At the same time, in the administrative state, progressives in particular want to try to separate politics and administration. So you get a joining uh, of branches that were separate, but you get a separation in the executive branch itself.
1: Mm -hmm. So we
2: think of these as sort of being extra-constitutional arrangements. We don't mean that they're unconstitutional in any literal sense, obviously, but we think that it's these arrangements that have been the key to making the American state work, to balancing presidential democracy with you know all the values that we care about that uh, depth um, helps secure. And I think I would go so far as to say as that we think that... Contra, you know, the formalists, that the spirit of the Constitution actually requires arrangements like this and requires thinking uh, more creatively as institutionalists. I think the problem of formalism today, including in the courts, is that at some level it stifles creativity and it stifles the ability to have an institutional imagination and think anew about how to develop solutions to the kinds of problems that we've identified in this book. Our history shows us that at different points, whether it be the rise of parties, the rise of the administrative state, that reformers have thought seriously about how to balance these competing values of political control with some level of stability. And they did that through rearranging the system. And right now in this much more literal uh, interpretation of the constitution you know, context that we're in, I think that's a real problem for being able to devise a solution to the issues we see today.
1: Right. It, it kind of reminds me a bit, uh, it sounds like you're, you're taking the approach kind of similar to like Walter Badger in his classic, the English constitution, you know, looking at uh, all, all the sort of uh, unspoken, uh, extra constitutional um Wait. That's exactly
2: that's exactly right. And it's not a coincidence that, you know, that book, I'm sure was a huge influence on many, but that book was the direct inspiration, for example, for Woodrow Wilson writing Congressional Government and a direct inspiration for him to want to sort of approach the presidency as more of a prime minister, legislative leader, go speak before Congress in person. That that was the vision. He wasn't the only one, but that was one of the visions he had. And that actually came directly out of that book.
1: Right, right, right. I didn't know that. That's a, a nice fact that I will definitely keep. <laughs> um, you know, we've reached the one hour mark. Uh, you know, it, it's been uh, really interesting talking to you and, and we could go on and on, I'm sure. But uh, in, in, in closing, what What's the message that you would like to leave your readers with um Desmond and then John um
0: I think there are two messages that I hope the book gets across um, one is that, that the institution of institutions of American government very broadly conceived and in particular the the presidency um ha- have reached um a sort of crisis or beleaguered point um where the expectations and the capacities um and the dangers of the use of power are um unresolved and in um in 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 conflict and intention um and there's no and this this is a general issue not not a partisan issue and I hope, secondly, that readers will um, see the book as a contribution to the debates we were talking about right at the beginning, uh, Kirk, about the the state theory and the nature of the state and bringing the state back in and so forth, and how those um, uh, institutions work. That's um, uh, and how states and how the American state can be thought of and um, conceptualized in ways that will be useful comparatively and for U.S. scholars. Thank
1: you. Uh, and John?
2: Um, so I would echo the the takeaways that uh, Des hopes our readers have. Um, and I would add one about our current moment and how to think about um, the Biden administration and some of the politics of today. So, um, You know, our book is obviously, there's a lot about Trump in it, um, but we don't just view it as a Trump book, of course. Uh, As we've said, we think that the Trump presidency was a culmination of some existing trends and tensions um, in our constitutional system. Those haven't gone away with Biden. So obviously, um, Joe Biden isn't Trump. He has a good government message. He promises a lot of self-restraint in his approach to the executive branch. He's He says he'll protect uh, investigatory independence at the Justice Department, follow the advice of doctors in response to the pandemic, listen to the scientists at the EPA. This is all comforting and great. Um, But two things to think about with how the Biden presidency is going so far on on this question of control of the executive branch. One is that so far anyway, to the extent that Biden has deferred to administrators, it is every bit his Choice to do so. It's a personal decision of the president to actually listen to the scientists or to respect prosecutorial independence. And this is a very personalistic approach to the presidency in the same way that Trump's is. The difference is that Trump did not respect those things. But for us, we think that, you know, a question to think about in this moment is how much discretion should presidents? have over these things at all. Is deference to science, is respect for investigatory independence something that we think every president should get to decide on their own, uh, to do what's politically expedient to them? We think these problems are more institutional in nature, and right now, to the extent that there is a solution, it has only been um, a personal one. The second thing is that it's not as if these changes that the unitary executive theory anticipate have suddenly stopped. In fact, in some ways, they're advancing, um, and Biden is at least partly implicated in that. So, the most obvious culprit is the Supreme Court. Um, during the Trump presidency, there were several decisions that advanced the unitary executive theory um, the, the uh, Lucia versus Securities and Exchange Commission case in 2018, um, and the Celia Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau case in 2020. Uh, That particular case, for example, found that uh, the single director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, who had a five-year term and could only be removed for cause, the court said that violated the separation of powers. That was a very clear endorsement of unitary theory. Um, That has continued in the last year with several decisions during the Biden administration, um, including one case, um, Collins. And uh, so it's maybe not surprising that conservative justices, uh, and especially those appointed by Trump and other Republicans, would would be doing this. But it's not as if Biden has uh, exactly pushed back on this. And in some cases, he's extended the court's logic on his own. So after um, one of the recent court decisions that found that another uh, single officer that had protected 4 cause removal provisions, that that was unconstitutional in the court's view, Biden then went and extended that logic and fired the social security administrator uh, and his office of legal counsel even came out with a memo saying, well, the court's logic applies to, you know, this office as well. And so, yes, he's a Democrat. Yes, he's not Trump, but he wanted to get a Trump appointee out of there. He took the court's logic and extended it. So this theory, even in this presidency, is very much still changing the structure of government before our eyes Um, To the extent that Biden doesn't push it to its limits, it's been his personal choice not to do so. But there is a playbook that is sitting there for a future president to come in and cut deep again and violate these norms. And at the moment, we have not had institutional solutions to these problems. Um, One of the ones maybe on the table in Congress is the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which would do several things such as strengthen protections for inspectors general. Uh, But that hasn't passed yet. And um, I think a message of our book is that we still need to be thinking very seriously about these things.
1: Very, very interesting. Um, so uh, finally, let me just ask both of you, are there any projects that you're working on right now that you would like our audience to know about? Desmond? Yes, I'm I'm uh,
0: working on a project with another colleague um, uh, at the University of Penn, Roger Smith. We're writing about um, the reparations agenda in the United States, which we think has become uh, politically very significant in the
1: last decade okay and john
2: um so uh if you don't mind i'll I'll put in a brief plug so i, I just had uh, another book come out called power shifts congress and presidential representation so that had been what i was working on until until recently okay. um, the next project that i'm looking to in its very very early days uh, is going to look at presidential power after the rights revolution
1: Okay, very interesting. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for this interview. It's been very informative and enjoyable. Once again, the book is Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic, The Deep State and the Unitary Executive. And we've been speaking to two of the co-authors, John Dearborn and Desmond King. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much for having us, Kirk.
1: And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.